This podcast contains discussion of mental health, depression, and mentions of suicide and self-harm. Listener discretion is advised. What writer do you know that doesn't beat themselves up? What actor do you know that doesn't beat themselves up? I get depressed. I get self-defeating. I struggle a lot with like self-hatred. Like, I, I, there's lots of parts of myself that I hate. Depression sort of, yeah, it tells you that everything will be shit and it tells you everything has been shit. Even the good things are, are bad. I circled the drain for a long time. Like it, it, cause my life was not turning out the way I thought it would. It's rarely a setback. It's the, it's that you get tired. Sometimes you get tired. And uh, when you get tired, um, then things start to hit you and you cannot see a way around. You're unable to make a decision to move either forward or backwards, where you're really stuck in this very specific place. My grandma dying basically was like a big, huge deal for me. And then the girl I grew up with next door got killed by a drunk driver uh, like a few weeks before she died. And then, um, and then a few months later, then the girl I thought I was gonna spend the rest of my life with dumped me. And I don't know why people, it's so taboo to talk about depression or feeling isolated or feeling disconnected. It's almost like people want to try to portray themselves as being perfect and happy and everything's great, but that's not real life. When I started to understand what a depression was, um, this, this, the clinical definition when you really get down to it is you're unable to make a decision to move either forward or backwards, where you're really stuck in this very specific place. And so when I first moved to New York, I didn't realize that I had been going through such a depression because I wasn't able to write. I wasn't able to, I mean, a play, an essay, anything. I wasn't able to do anything. And I also wasn't able to make a decision about what my life was about to look like. And so um, when I started to deal with that, I definitely decided to get with a therapist and to start really working through the process about where I was and where I was eventually trying to go. And after being able to identify a lot of like the decisions that I was making in the present were rooted in a lot of stuff that I had done and dealt with in the past. Um, like losing my job and trying to prove to people that I had worthiness, even though something very valuable to me was actually taken away. And so one of the things that the therapist said that really began to um, transform me was one, he said, nobody is responsible for your life but you. And how you engage and get back to you is you do the things that you want to do, the things that you enjoy the things that make you happy and through that you will be able to kind of start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I hit a low point in New York City one time and almost homeless and I literally was getting high all the time on different things and I was on the street. I had my hand out and I was begging for money and this older lady came by one day and she looked at me and said ma'am can I have some change and she looked at me and she walked by. I thought she was gone, so I asked the next person. And I felt a little tap on my back. The same old lady. I said, yes, ma'am, you got change? She looked in my face and she said, son, do your mama know you're out here doing this? I said, no, ma'am. She shook her head. She just walked away. Didn't give me a dime. I turned around, I sit on the steps, and never begged for money again. 
You still see her face? Yes. Oh, yes. I turned around and I looked, I just walked, I walked her, she walked two blocks and took a left and I watched her. Changed my life. Reminded me what my parents told me. And I, I had a college education and I had a master's degree and blah, blah, blah. My mother and father went to second and third grade and they never asked anybody for anything. I had to carry that legacy on. Changed my life. During uh, Lights Out, I, I got pretty depressed there for a while when it's like, it's just that shock of, oh, this isn't what I thought it was gonna be, or, or like, I didn't think it was gonna turn out this way when you see something. Um, but I, I think, I mean, on everything I've done, halfway through, I get really depressed. Uh, that's true for the shorts even. Like every short lot that I've made, halfway through, I, I want to quit. Because I'm like, this is shit, this is garbage, I don't want to do it. Um, and the, she convinces me to actually go through with it, and then you're very happy about it later on. And that, that's sort of the um, thing that's happened on every movie. Like halfway through, you're like, oh, this is, this is bad. This is not what I wanted. And, um, but you, you have to go through with it. And then even on Lights Out, the producer told me that you know, when you see your first cut, you're going to be, you know, not very happy. <laughs> or like the, the first sort of assembly of it. Because he was saying that, you know, when Ben Affleck saw the first cut of Argo, he was like, my career's over. And then he like won an Oscar and everything. And that's, even though I was told that, first time I saw the cut, first cut of Lights Out, it was like, well, this is shit. I've ruined, I fucked this up, you know. Uh, maybe they can cut a cool trailer of it, but the movie is terrible. But then you just keep working out, you cut out all those little things that bother you and you get the music in there and the, the, the DI and everything. And then at the end, it's like, it's actually pretty cool. So, but, but on Lights Out, for the post-production there, I was quite depressed and really thought it was bad until we had a test screening and I could hear the audience and feel that energy. I was like, okay. And then that's when it started like, okay, maybe this is pretty good. And that, that happens on every movie. Um, and also after every movie wraps, I also get depressed. But now after three movies, I, I know myself very well. So I sort of get through it better. Like, when Shazam was winding down, I was talking to Lotta about how, yeah, I'm going to get depressed afterwards and it's going to be pretty hard, but I know it's coming and sure enough it does. And then since you've been through it so many times, you're able to write it out better because like it's temporary, even though when you're depressed, it never feels temporary because depression sort of, yeah, it tells you that everything will be shit and it tells you everything has been shit. Even the good things are, are bad, you know. Um, so yeah, every, every, every I, I think that every movie is a roller coaster with, with highs and lows throughout. I mean, that's happened to my brother as well who makes video games. Like he spent seven years making a video game and then it's done. I mean, it's that thing of, I don't know if it's, if we think that more is gonna change, like you, you work hard for like two years, like on Shazam or whatever, or, or a movie and like, you come out of it and like, you almost think like the world is going to be different now or you're going to be different. And then it's sort of like, oh, it's back to the same kind of, and it, it's sort of a break in routine, especially when you have, 
like on a movie like this, you have a routine, you have a purpose, you know what you're doing. And like every day you come in, you see the same people, you know, you eat lunch together and you talk and you get to know each other. And then one day it's over and it's like, it's kind of like getting fired or almost someone dying or something. It's just like, oh, we're sort of back to this. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> things where you don't change as much as you expect almost because you're building to this big thing and then comes out and even if, yeah, it makes money and it's, it's great and people love it, but it's still that feeling of like, all right, well, what now? Or like you're kind of back to square one in, in some ways, which is, um, which is weird. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a part of life, I guess. I guess you just have to get to know yourself better and sort of like yourself even more because even though you do this big thing, you're still the same person. And if you're not comfortable with who you are, you know, no big movie or big project is gonna, really gonna change that. That's just sort of things around it. Or you could just start a new project. That's, yeah. <laughs> just go yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, right now it's like, oh, I have to get started on something new and um, yeah. I think what's interesting is I, um, I worked with celebrities for so long and, you know, celebrities really create the persona that they want the, the public to see them as. And I kind of, working around that, promised myself that no matter what, if a camera was rolling or if I was in front of the camera, that I would be myself, no matter, you know, that I would reveal whatever it is that I was feeling. And I don't know why people, it's so taboo to talk about depression or feeling isolated or feeling disconnected. It's almost like people want to try to portray themselves as being perfect and happy and everything's great, but that's not real life. I can understand the business side of, of making films and, you know, it's a lot of money and it's a lot of people's money. And my lawyer and my agent both felt like me talking about um, addiction, suicide, depression, anxiety, talking about that in the public and um, that it would hurt my career, that I would, um, you know, not be able to be insured or hired. And I didn't agree with them. I didn't agree because I felt like this journey was about me getting better. This journey was about meeting these people and showing that when you have face-to-face -face interaction and you come with an open heart that we help each other. We help each other grow. We help each other get through things. So, you know, I, I sort of went the exact opposite of what they told me to do and I'm so glad that I did and I no longer work with them. <laughs> My case and probably the case of every filmmaker out there, you, you, you see that spark and you love it and you fight and you sacrifice everything to get there and you do it and you do it and you do it and then it doesn't quite happen the way you think. You're not plucked out of obscurity like some of these guys are. You're still working in the trenches for years and it's a little, it can get frustrating. And then in my case, I did a film that had a lot of controversy around it and was never ultimately released. And it was so utterly devastating because after so many years of just working and working and working and sacrifice, this film looked like it was gonna really be something. And then instead, it, it's not released and there's a lot of controversy and bad press and all these ugly things. And it just, it devastated me so much that I, I, I didn't know if it was worth it.
and I circled the drain. Because it's hard to go from something like that, from a film that was so artistically satisfying, with such a great script and all these things, to go from that to going back to trying to find work as a doing more corporate stuff. Like, I was like, how do you even, what am I gonna do? Like, I, I circled the drain for a long time. Like, it, it, because my life was not turning out the way I thought it would. And this is everyone's story, right? Everyone, like, we all think we know how it's gonna turn out, and life does this to you and goes back this way, and you know. So, for, for a few years, I didn't know. My wife suggested to me, maybe we should just sell everything and go teach English in Korea. And I seriously thought about it. Um, and uh, it, it got to a point with me where I, I had to just, it, it stripped everything away from me. It got me back to the basics of what do I really love? It, it, it forced me to take another look at what do I love about the film industry and filmmaking and storytelling. And, I found that spark again, like I just, I love moving people and crafting stories and I love to see people laugh when they're supposed to or jump when they're supposed to, like I have worked my whole life for that. It, there's no feeling and no, I don't know anything else. I couldn't do anything else. Um, and, I, and I also had to, you know, and take that experience and try to see all the good that came out of it because a lot of good did and move forward, which is it's not easy, but yeah, it, yeah, that's the other thing they don't tell you in film school is what happens when discouragement hits, because it does. Like, it can, you know, especially when the success doesn't come when you think it will, you know? Or it builds up to it and it, it feels like you're being blamed or something. Yeah, I mean, there is like, and I started this with, by saying this, there is, we are sold on this idea that, that filmmaking will happen in a certain way. Like the Duplass brothers were speaking at a film festival years ago or whatever. I saw, I read this article somewhere and they said, here's what you do. You make your film for 500 bucks and then you get distribution on it. You'll make some money on it. Then you make your second film and you put a big star in it and that'll do well on the festival circuit. Yeah, well, it might happen that way, but it might not. For most people, that's not how it happens. You'll make your film and you'll mortgage your house and then nothing happens. That's so common. That happens all the time. The film disappeared on Netflix and that's the end. And now what? And you know, you're not discovered and you're not picked from obscurity. And so then what do you do from there? Do you keep going? How much do you really love this? How hard are you willing to write that next script? get the next one going, fight for the next client with everything you've got um, and fight that cynicism that wants to just rear its ugly little head. Um, yeah, that's, that's where the love of it will really, you, you better discover it. You better know why you love it. Um, and I do think it's worth fighting for. All the negativity, all the challenges, all the frustrations is worth fighting through to get there because it really is great. Like when you're on set and it's working and you're telling that story and the actors are there and the cinematography, look, it, it's so like all of that disappears and just fades away. And you're just like, wow, I'm creating this amazing moment and it's working. Yeah, it, it's worth fighting for, no question. It's not like I wanted to, t I just felt like I could die, you know, and like, 
I don't think I've ever been like a suicidal person, but there's so many times where I'm on the road and I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll just run off the cliff right now. And I think, I mean, that happens so many times, you know, and um, all it takes is that one second where you just say, fuck it, and you actually do it. And I've never done it, obviously. Um, I mean, sometimes it's not even like I feel like dying. Sometimes it's like I feel so numb. I'm in so much pain that I've actually become numb that I want to maybe crash my car into um, a pole and hope that nothing bad happens. It just really hurts and it kind of wakes me back up. Like, okay, now you're alive. Wait, you know, wake up and get back to it, you know? Um, so I have those kind of, I guess, feelings. It's not like I've ever had, oh, I'm gonna put a gun to my head or I'm gonna take a bunch of pills. Um, I've, I've never actually thought that way, but it's been more, it's always driving because I drive a lot. And so it's always been more like I'm, you know, I get really depressed and then I'm always driving. So a lot of times I'm on the road and I'm just like, eh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but you, you didn't, it, it I never like do. Yeah. At oh, the I mean, time that this happened, then that's when you heard about Alyssa, is it Bustamante? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's when you heard about Alyssa Bustamante. So was that did you somehow become obsessed with that because sometimes there's like something that'll break us out of our own like troubles and we kind of zero in on that probably yeah because I had been made out to be a monster and then I saw her be made out to be a monster and then I saw a lot of you know similarities you know of me and her um, and then so yeah so I guess my you know it's like uh, kind of grabbed my attention off of that and put it on that but what was interesting you know it only took us four days to shoot the film which was, it was actually the best, most fun I've ever had shooting a movie. It was so easy. It was like the easiest shoot in the world. But then I had to sit on the film. We shot like in April. Um, but then I got dumped in July and it was an insanely bad breakup. And then um, that's when I finally, finally started editing. So I actually, um, that's when I became obsessed, I think, is uh, after the breakup because that's when I actually started putting the film together. And then I literally felt like I only had this film. I mean, that, that's what happened is, uh, you know, I kind of made the movie. Um, it, it took my attention off the, uh, the thing that happened to me in the media. Um, and then I went back to kind of life with the relationship issues. And then a couple months later, then that was over. And then I, that's when I was just like, didn't want to live. And I kind of like became sunken in depression with this movie and then became obsessed with it, I guess. You know, so I'm always depressed over a girlfriend and then, uh, I come up with something so like amateur porn star killer like I, when I did that I had never made a feature I'd attempted multiple times since I was 10 to make a feature and it and I had shot three features and I could just could never finish them so in 2000 when I was 24 after getting um, dumped by my first long-term relationship uh, there was just a bad year in general and that was actually the worst year because my grandma had died and she was like basically my mom to me um, like my, I have my mom, but I mean, my mom's blind, so my grandma did a lot of mom stuff. So my grandma and my mom kind of like, they were like my two moms in a way. So um, my grandma dying basically was like a big, huge deal for me. And then the girl I grew up with next door got killed by a drunk driver uh, like a few weeks before she died. And then, um, and then a few months later, then the girl I thought I was gonna spend the rest of my life with dumped me. And so that was the first point, I think, aside from all the times I'm, when I was a kid where I didn't I wanted to die. This was the first time I think my adult life where I wanted to die. Now, like I had another breakup, <laughs> um, you know, uh, in October, but the girl didn't move out until just this April. And so it was tearing me up this whole time. So I didn't even feel like we broke up until April. And so I've been doing films now that I think have been saving my life from that. Like the past two months, I've never worked so much in my life. And then that was to 
you know, because I was feeling all suicidal again, I guess, after her. So I, I guess every time I make a movie, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of saving my life. Rarely do I make a movie um, where I'm like really happy and hey, I'm making a movie. It's usually life sucks and this movie is saving my life, you know, if that answers the question. Usually I'm always in a state of life sucks and, and a movie saves my life. So maybe that's why, maybe that's why people get something out of it because I'm always kind of pouring, I guess, a lot of heart and soul into it. I'm never just doing it, to, I'm never just doing it to kill time, you know. It's, it's always to get my mind off of stuff, you know. I have to say the having to drink before a phone call and feeling so alone and feeling like I was going to blow every opportunity and I was never going to reach my potential. And that was something that I would feel daily because I couldn't go out. I remember one time uh, taking a big hit off my bong and then running down the stairs to get the mail because that's the only way I could get the mail. And I bumped into the mailman and exhaled. And I'm like, oh my God, I could never get the mail now. Like I blew my one thing I could do. And then I'd go back up and, and drink. And also my husband was gonna leave me. So uh, I remember like one time, I was a bad drunk and I was waiting for him to come home. And I thought, I wonder if I have time to, to, to pour myself a drink and I thought, no, I'll have to drink it from the bottle. And I'm drinking it, the bottle smashes, there's red wine everywhere, and turns out I had enough time because the guy never came home that night. He said, yeah, if you were such a drunk, I'd come home. And I said, sorry. So I think that was pretty painful. Okay, no wonder I pushed it out. I turned to <laughs> comedy, sorry, comedy I'm wellness. Okay. okay, one time I was with a guy who I'm, the, the one who pretended he was British. Uh, he hit me and I, I locked myself in the bathroom. I was in the bathtub and I was shaking and I said, Ma, I found my own Nazis, you know, I made, how could, I made my own Holocaust. I'm like in the bathroom, I'm just, you know, and he tried to get me deported. Oh my goodness. So um, I think that that was probably a low. I was kind of used to throwing up in bathrooms all over town. Um, I, cause that's how I drank. I drank to the point of blacking out. I rarely remembered the end of the evening or looked the same <laughs> than I did at the beginning of the evening. Yeah. So, um, but I never learned, I never stopped until I was able to find some meetings where people were, I walked in and they, here were people sharing it. You threw up on, at, in Spagos too? Oh my goodness, what else horrible, <laughs> embarrassing things have you done? The same things that I did. Right. You know, they found the men, they found the booze, they found the drugs, and they were they were like sober now. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna keep coming back. You know, this is, the, yeah, yeah, this is, this is something I have to learn, I have to read up on. But I didn't, uh, okay, so the next day they said, you see, you can't share at a meeting unless you have 24 hours of sobriety. And I, I was like, a, I'm Canadian, a good little alcoholic. You know, I wasn't going to do that. So I thought, how am I going to get 24 hours of sobriety? I thought, okay, because my plan was to go to one meeting, go home and drink myself to death. Not, not all at once, just eventually, because I had already had a bad liver report. At 26 at UCLA, they, they told me my liver was going, I had a bad liver panel. And they told me to stop doing everything. I'm like, I went home and got so drunk because I thought, oh my God, this is going to kill my mother, the Holocaust survivor. I'm going to die before her. 
Anyway, so I got really, really drunk, you know. <clears throat> so um, I, I thought, okay, how am I gonna get through this 24 hours so I can share? And um, I was even offered cocaine and it was incredible. I just thought, no, I must share. I must share once before I die. I can always die later. So I thought, okay, just get through the night, get through the night. And I did, and I went to my next meeting and I shared for the first time, I put up my hand and I'm like, you guys are taking cakes and chips for like 10 years. I can't get 10 minutes. How do you do it? And this little old lady who's probably about 10 years younger than me turns around and goes, oh honey, we do it one day at a time. I'm like, like the sitcom, heavy. Okay, I am gonna try this. And I just kept going to a lot of meetings and here we are. 36 years later, still sober. Because, you know, I, I learned. First of all, I didn't realize the guy that I was living with was bald and I didn't know. He wore a weave. Oh, how did you find out? Well, it occurred to me his hair was like unusually thick. You know that I'm sober. I was like getting a new pair of glasses. There's actually a book like that. So one night when he, he's kept drinking heavily. So I'm sober. I'm like obsessed with his hair. That was just, <laughs> so I was going to like, I'm going to find out what's under there. So I, I, I crawl over there very quietly and I lift the thing because he'd had a whole bottle of wine and I saw it was a weave. It was like stuck on. And then I realized his eyes were open and he was looking at me and I'm like, I put it down. I went back to my side of the bed. I went back. We never spoke of it, but I thought if I didn't know my own husband was bald, what else have I been missing? I better stay sober because that would, you would think that would be obvious. What else, what else did I get wrong? It turns out a lot. I got a lot wrong. Do you think that's why storytelling is important? Because you wanted to tell your story, which was real. And that is sharing in a meeting. And essentially you're telling a story of either your day or your life or what you're struggling with? I had to be a writer. I had to tell people. Uh, one of the reasons I, I felt I survived in certain circumstances was I needed to tell someone what I went through, which I, I heard some Holocaust survivors say too. They survived because of luck and the need to tell people what went on. That there is a, a, a passion and a, a belief and a support for the pain uh, from depression to PSD to, you know, that you're not alone and that, you know, we, we've gone down this journey with you and, you know, there, the healing can happen and obviously it's a slow, long, drawn out process, but for sure this is something we can all get over eventually. Right. I would, I would actually second that, you know, you're not alone. and. Um, I know a lot of movies like to tie everything up in a nice pretty bow and everything's fine and everybody moves on and it's great and we're all happy and healthy and we wanted to just make sure that it stayed real to the ending of they're on the road back mm -hmm. and they all know it's a long road but they're all on it and they're you know they're in the buggy chugging along um, knowing that they're if you're willing and a willing participant in healing it can happen you just have to you have to be there and stay present and willing to work through it. How real the situation is because it's one of those things where I don't know if people really are in tune or want to address how dark depression and, and PSD can be and 
to hear people come to us and say, my grandmother, she completely separated, or my father, my, and that's, that's one of those things that you, you, you didn't expect to connect. You know, we were just kind of telling the story for our own process, and it developed into a movie from there, and then, you know, actually we put it out. So you don't expect people to, to grab you in the lobby and just talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about so much of their own personal and be so willing. Helping them to heal that they're not alone. So that's been a gift. Absolutely. It's been a true gift. This is a calling to me. This is a calling to be this. See, when, you, when it's a calling, there's nothing that can take you away from it. I mean, you know, you get sick or whatever. Like my mother fell and hurt herself. Now, if I had to go and I went home for a couple of weeks to tend to my mother, if I had to go home to take care of my mother, I would do that. Because, see, family comes first. You know, if I had to say, okay, I'm going to have to go home for a while, I would do that. See, so it's not like, no, no, no. If it's, a, if it's an emergency situation, that always, to me, takes precedence over this. Because you can't, I couldn't be happy or really concentrate knowing that my mama or somebody needs me and they're helpless. I couldn't, you know, you can't, you can't function. So, I mean, I would do that. But if it's about the fact that, you know, the pool, like I dated a girl that was here from Chicago and we went to see a movie in, uh, in, at the Sherman Oaks Galleria. And when we left the movie, she got a call from her, um, from her mother and they were having a cookout in the backyard or something. So this was like a, we went to see her like a early matinee, you know, around 12 or something like that. So uh, after the movie was over, it was around two o'clock or whatever, back in Chicago it was four o'clock and it was on, a, I think it was Saturday or something. And her mother called and said, oh, your cousin such and such is here. Oh, we got barbecue, we got potato salad, we got all of this stuff. Oh, everybody asking about you. And we were walking, going to, you know, you, we walk into the car, you know, you've been in the gallery, right? Mm -hmm. oh, so yeah. we walk into the car underground and she stopped dead in her tracks and started talking and then all of a sudden, she said, okay, I'll call you back, Ma. I'll call you back. She hung up on the phone and Start oh, broke down, start crying. So naturally, people <laughs> walking past say, "What did you do to her?" I said, "I done nothing." What? And people looking at me like, "Yeah, did you hit her? Did you?" I'm like, "No, I'm just standing here." She started crying and said, "I want to go home." Mm. And we got in the car and she cried and cried. We didn't even we didn't even take off. We just sat there in the car and she said, "What should I do?" I said, "You should go home." She said, "Really?" I said. You should go home. I said, you, you, you need to go home because you're feeling that. She said, but I don't, I, I said, don't worry about me or your agents and all these people. You got to do what's best for you. If it means being in this business, be in this business. If it means going home, go home. She went home. There was one woman that a um, long time after it happened um, thanked me privately for you know, spending some time and talking with her and, and um, kind of talking her down. I mean, she just had had it. I, I remember the, the long conversation we had on the telephone about, you know, why this business sucked and there was no, no 
opportunity for advancement for her and nothing was working and she just felt like she was on a hamster wheel going nowhere. And I said, you know, that, that may be true and it may not be true. You, you may never go anywhere, but you're not going to find out unless you stay and try because it could happen tomorrow. It could happen tomorrow. That's what happened to me. I mean, I was just kind of a workaday, co-star, occasional guest star guy until I was brought in to audition for an HBO show on a Saturday. Ugh, Saturday? That's very inconvenient for me. I really don't want to go in and audition on a Saturday because I play softball on Saturdays. and um, Maybe they'll do it a different day. Agent, can you get me in a different day? No, they're just doing it on Saturdays. <sighs> all right, all right. And I went in and there were 50 other guys there and they all looked like me. And I thought, oh, geez, this is ridiculous. But I did my, did my job in the room and then I came back and I came back again and the herd thinned and thinned and thinned and thinned and finally, make a long story short, I was cast uh, as uh, Ed Halligan in Funny or Die Presents and Liz Paulson brought me in for that. For that role and that show um, produced by Will Ferrell which was sort of the TV version of the Funny or Die website um, changed everything for me. It put me on radars that I previously had not been on and, and opened a lot of doors for me and created opportunities that I never would have had had Liz not brought me in for that role and I will forever be grateful to her for that. Yeah. But, and, and, and to just to finish the thought, if you don't stay and wait for that opportunity, you won't know. So, uh, yeah, that, that woman and I had a very long conversation that night, but I, you know, I didn't, I was just trying to give her a pep talk, um, but it turned out that uh, it was important to her and um, she stayed and she's still here and working. I don't want to get too dark here, but uh, but I think writing is inherently like the only person you're battling is yourself, really, most of the time. Because, uh, and I think in particular, uh, at least for me, I can only speak to my experience, but I, I struggle a lot with like self-hatred. Like, I, I there's lots of parts of myself that I hate. And uh, I'm only sort of just now getting over a lot of these types of things, but like when it's just you, and a blank screen and a cursor flashing. Sometimes like all of your insecurities and things just bubble up and it gets in the way of you of you getting your creative thoughts onto the page. And I've learned just for me, like when I'm able to give myself permission to write the worst, most terrible pages of all time, then I can do it. And then I know in my uh, like in my back pocket, I know that writing is a process. So I know that like whatever I try on my first attempt is probably not going to be very good. In fact, like, you know, the, the terrible first draft is like, that's just kind of a law in how I see it. There are other people who I'm sure are, are brilliant that can pump out a genius first draft. I am not that person. I will never be that person. And so for me, um, when I'm allowed to give myself grace, and allow myself to write terribly, to just write things that don't make sense, to write sentence fragments, to write, and then they fight. 
I'll come back later and then keep going. You know what I mean? Like when I allow myself that sort of level of freedom, then I can write. And I feel like on paper, I shouldn't be a writer because I'm like my self-criticism in my brain is pretty fierce and sometimes it's unbearable. But I think that you, you do, you have to give yourself grace and you have to like, again, I don't want to be too new agey, but you got to like <laughs> kind of love yourself. You know what I mean? You have to be okay with, yep, these are some terrible words, but you know, they're words and that's all that matters right now. In this particular instance, the only thing that matters is like I'm putting words onto the page. They don't have to be the right words. They don't have to be in the right order, but they're words. And for at least for a first draft, that's the that's the thing that I think when I learned that sort of like, you know, unlocked in my brain, I'm just like, oh, this draft doesn't count. It doesn't count because I'm gonna I can go back and fix it later. Um, and so writing with a, a reckless abandon of like this doesn't have to be good. This is supposed to be bad. Anyone can write a terrible thing. You know what I mean? Uh, terrible just in terms of the mechanics of the words. Like anybody can write something terrible. You know? And like that's how I find my entry into it. It's like if I I know for a fact that I can write something terrible. If my goal is to sit down and be a genius, I can't hit that every day. But I can hit being really bad every day. And so that's my only uh, metric of success is like, are there words on the page? Yes. I don't, my metric of success is not, are they good words? Is this good? That's for, that's for later. How do you feel on those days when you have no time to work on your writing? I get really depressed. I get depressed. I get self-defeating, you know, um, I've always believed in some weird way that that that, that uh, I'm, you know, the parable about the the tortoise and the hare kind of a thing. You know, I feel like I'm like the tortoise kind of, and so I have a kind of really, really strong and present work ethic that sometimes gets really annoying. You know, so I have a really bad, guilty kind of conscience about not working. So there are certainly days where I'm not doing any writing or not doing any kind of, you know, workshopping and, and um, it's frustrating because you feel like you haven't been productive. But I think going back to a bigger kind of uh, frame, I think those m moments are important. You know, when I do experience writer's block and I go and go for a hike, and zone out, um, and I spend a day at the beach or I'm watching a movie or something, I think a lot of good can come from that. You know, it gives you perspective and distance from the project a little bit. Um, and I also think that if you're not writing, it, you know, either because there's something wrong with the script, with the story, or that something else is supposed to happen that you have to tend to, whether it's life things or whether it's whatever. So. I try not to beat myself up too much about it, but but I can be very hard on myself for sure. What we are, I think, in this business, so many of us, we're, we're, we don't, we're not treated as business owners. We're not treated as entrepreneurs. We're treated as struggling artists, right? But we are business owners, right? We each are running our own business with limited staff, with, you know, high overhead 
with trying to figure out how to make our product different from our competitors and we're all struggling to find funding, right? And so we have to kind of wear that hat with a little more pride. You know, we are business owners, we are entrepreneurs. And so it's, 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 it is tough when you are running your own business and you feel like, you know, you're not going to work on that one day and you feel like, oh no, what's going on? So, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's tough when I feel like I'm not being productive. You know, I've read a lot of kind of blogs and watched a lot of interviews about other writers who either have the luxury to write every single day, you know, because they're, they're being paid to write a certain script or that's how they work. But, and I, I, I think for me, I'm not sure that I'm the kind of writer who writes every day. You know, maybe I need to be a little bit better about that. I'm not sure, but I try to be mindful of what is inspiring to me at the moment, you know, and, and, and letting that energy build up, you know, so that I'm not just sitting at a computer, like staring at a blank page. You know, for me, I think sometimes it's important to stare at a blank page and other times it's really important to just kind of like let that energy build up and build up and build up so that you have a lot to say, you know, so that you have a lot to say and a lot to express and, and you can put it all on the page and I think that's important too. Yeah, I've got my, 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 my nerdiness and one of the things is I always like to study people who have been, you know, massively successful or influential uh, in, in across a broad spectrum of, of disciplines and industries and, and um, there's uh, what, what, uh, let me ask you, what do you think would be the common, the, the common denominator with the most successful people? I know that's, well, what does successful mean? So let's just say financially, you know, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically. The most successful people, what would you think is the most common uh, trait that they have? From what I've seen, uh, I think people that are just obsessed with something. It doesn't even mean that they're good people or, you know, any, anywhere on, on the spectrum of, of sort of intentions. But I think being so obsessed with whatever they are into, whether it's acting, whether it's stock trading, whether it's real estate, whether it's painting, whether it's meditation. I've seen people that just have this laser focus with something right. and they're obsessed with it and right. it's their life. That, it's seven days a week. That is a very common answer. And that's certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, that's certainly necessary you know the, the 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 seminal book that napoleon hill wrote think and grow rich you have to have that burning desire right white hot burning desire which in today's world is like i'm obsessed <laughs> everybody says obsessed um it's not necessarily the best word to use but it's the word of the day um so yes that's it but but the 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 trait that people see that's that's kind of a given is self-compassion Ah, so sort of um, self-awareness or, or... Self-compassion. Compassion. compassion. Uh -huh. can, you, can, you, can you take me through that, what that would be? Sure. Self-empathy. So not beating up on oneself. There you go. Interesting. I Isn't would it? not have guessed that. Yeah, well, neither would I. And but where did you learn that? they all do. Uh, from just reading and studying uh, different people, male, female, different industries, different disciplines, different... Uh, races, origins, 
you're going to make mistakes. You are going to, right? Um, so since we're talking about acting and you know, this is film courage uh, and writing, there's a lot of writers that, that uh, uh, watch this. And um, I mean, what writer do you know that doesn't beat themselves up? What actor do you know that doesn't beat themselves up, right? Right. Like there's that neurosis that's always like sitting on the shoulder here, you know, that anxiety's over here and just like, oh my God, what are they thinking about me? Like, give yourself a break. Relax. Right? Because reality is most everyone not even thinking about you. That's true. Yeah. They're thinking about themselves. And P.S. They're having the same conversation in your head <laughs> that you are. And they're thinking you're thinking that about them. Yeah. Right? Right. We're all human beings. Right? Give yourself a break. You're doing the best you can do with what you have at that time. And if you are obsessed, as we say, or you have that burning desire, whatever it may be, uh, then just trust that you're going to make mistakes. But that's how you learn. Mistakes are a great thing. I never used to think that way. I, I sound, I wonder how that <laughs> sounds probably crazy to say that, but it's the truth. Mistakes, mistakes are a blessing, man. Number one, it means you're still alive. You got problems, you're still alive. There's an old story some guy was telling. Um, a guy and his son are driving uh, through town and the kid's talking about problems, problems, problems. And, you know, Dad, I just wish I didn't have any problems. And they drive by the graveyard. He goes, you want to know one place where they don't have problems? And he points to the graveyard. Those problems are good. They're a sign of life, son. So, yeah. Yeah, it's the truth, though, right? You're going to make mistakes. That's how you learn, man. That's how you learn. Pain is the greatest teacher there is. And everyone runs from it to their detriment. Myself included. And from what I can make out, the type A personality is the unhappy workaholic who can't do anything in life except work and who basically is making himself and the people around him miserable because of his work, because his obsessive need to be working all the time. And then there's the type P personality who never is very well defined and, and somehow doesn't become uh, an ideal as Sellier describes him, but is somebody who's well-adjusted and doesn't feel the same crazy pressures that the type A feels. And I thought, well, the problem with that theory is that it leaves out people who absolutely love their work and who are able to live you know, other full lives at the same time. Uh, and I started thinking about that and realizing there are a lot of people like that, and I call them type C's in one of my books. And the type C is the creative personality that uh, loves to work, would probably be rather be working than anything else, but isn't uh, negatively impacted by that at all. Instead, they just thrive on their work. I mean, there's an example I saw long ago is Pablo Casals, uh, the great you know, cellist, uh, was so crippled with arthritis when he got to be older uh, that he had to be carried from his bed every morning to his piano bench. And because uh, he warmed up every day by playing the piano for half an hour, an hour. And, but, but he got to the point where he couldn't walk to the bench. He had to be carried, carried to the bench and then s stacked onto his bench. And his arms had to be lifted onto the keyboard. And then he would slowly but surely start playing for an hour. And at the end of the hour, he got up and walked to, to, you know, to the kitchen for breakfast. Uh, and he did this every day in his last 10 years. And he was reactivating his body through the creative, you know, the creative process that he was very well in tune with. And I realized that type C personalities are people who uh, have this 
you know, creative affliction, uh, or whatever you call it, this gift, and, but, but understand it, as opposed to those who don't understand it and who have often tragic endings like Sylvia Plath or Hemingway or Virginia Woolf or many others in the creative world who never understand their process, who think that every time uh, they finish a book, it's the end of the world and they go into a deep depression. Uh, this is very common in the creative world is to be depressed after you finish a work. So when you really think about that, the solution is obvious. Never get to the point where you're finishing a work. And that happens on the negative side for a lot of people who can never finish their book or never finish their article or never finish their poem because they're afraid of finishing, fear of finishing. And, and as a tenured professor, I was always on committees um, judging other people who couldn't finish anything. And one of my colleagues who, like me, had published many books, we were both on the same committee judging another colleague who had not finished a single book. And my colleague said to me, you know, you and I would, would write a book in the time it takes him to research um, a chapter of a book. And I said, yeah, because I always do my research last. You know, I write the book first and then do the research. And uh, so I already know it's going to end. But to get back to this finishing idea of finishing, um, a simple solution to this postpartum depression is to, uh, when you know that you're almost done, when you know that you're in the home stretch of, of, of a book or of a screenplay or whatever it is, stop, take a day off, take two days off, because the energy of finishing is so huge that it will easily be recalled when you sit down again to allow it into this compartment that you're using. But take a day off instead and start your next project. Truly get into your next project because every creative person has another project that's dying to be next. So sit down and start it and go on it. Do it to the point where you can't wait to go on with it. And then stop and go back and finish the project you were finishing. And you'll discover that there is no, no, no more any postpartum depression because you haven't allowed it. You've simply managed the time, you know, the finite commodity at your disposal. You've managed the time so you don't have to deal with that. Because being depressed is basically most of the time a waste of time for an artist. Uh, you can allow it for a while if it gives you great ideas and deepens your pathos and the things that you need to draw on. But it's basically, too much of it is a waste of time. And, you know, one of my mentors years ago, John Gardner, the novelist, said uh, people should just start doing more. It gets rid of all the moods they're having. You know, if you're in a down mood, get up and run around the block. And literally, that works. I mean, if you get your body going and run around the block, it's hard to be in that kind of morbid, depressed state you were in before. Uh, so managing your moods like that is what separates a productive, happy creative person from a productive, unhappy creative person. You notice I'm not talking about the unproductive ones. That's a whole different subject. But I'm talking about people who are creatively productive and have careers. They're still divided into the unhappy ones and the happy ones. And it's a matter of understanding, I think, how your mind is working that makes you part of the happy group and you don't have to be part of the unhappy group despite a lot of um, 
urban myths to the contrary that basically say the artist's got to be suffering and tortured and all of that. That's really not necessary. It's rarely a setback. It's, the, it's that you get tired. Sometimes you get tired. And uh, when you get tired, um, then things start to hit you and you cannot see a way around, you know. Whereas if you've got a good night's sleep, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. I think it's the wear and tear, and that's where you really have to say, uh, never get into this life alone, you know. Mm. Get, get, always have somebody to back you up, a friend, or, or you know, in this case, we have, have a spouse who's a friend. Well, but, we also have but the table. When yeah. We have, yeah. yeah, we have the table, which we can talk about in one second, but the whole thing is to say, this whole thing about rugged individualism and by your bootstraps, yeah. that's just not the way people operate. You know, it's one of my favorite songs is Lean On Me, and you know, and, you know, and someday I'll need someone to lean on. And I, I think that's really true. So it's, it's yes. the day-to-day -day grind. You know, the, the, you, you always you hope for something. Sometimes his hopes are higher than mine, so I don't have his big setbacks mm. because I'm always a little more wary than he is. And he'll mm. say, oh, this is great. Oh, dear, no, no. So it's like a <laughs> much, much, you know, it's a bigger hit when it goes down. But, but still, it's that, you know, if you don't expect to, if you, you know there's somebody you can turn to and say, I'm just down today. It's mm. just, I just had a bad day. And someone can say, it's, it's okay, you, you've got the, you know, somebody can just say, it's okay, keep going. That that's the big, um, I'd say just dealing it with it with other people is the trick and don't, don't lock it down. Hollywood can be very corrosive, it can wear you down. You have to really be very careful of who you're giving judgment to. Who's in judgment of you, where you internalize that. Because if you, if it's people who are hateful, who are toxic, who are cruel, um, that can destroy you. And so you have, to, you have to surround yourself with people who are loving, people who are kind. And uh, it's, it's hugely important. And um, because at the end of the day, you have to build a life. The life is, is ultimately more important than this script or this project or any of it. You have to have a life where you're loved and you're loving, where you have, a, have people who, as Elaine said, when you falter, will be there for you. And again, it has to be, you know, lean on me is good if it's, if it's going both ways. It isn't like, well, let me drain your life force and leave you an empty husk, you know, which is what some people do, you know. And so you have to make sure that it's, it's reciprocal. And that's what we often say is, uh, your career will be defined by two poles, what you stand for and what you won't stand for. But you have to know what those two things are. And, and a lot of people, uh, particularly actors, Actors can end up being very successful but feeling very empty because they're doing roles that are not, not in alignment with what they themselves believe. And so you have to f decide, well, what do I believe? What is meaningful to me? And then how can I do work that speaks from that and speaks to that? There's a habit of executives who are not artists to sort of project who the hell are you, you know? And it's very hard to answer that, but if you know what you stand for, like if you say, I, I, what I take a stand for, the message that I'm going to give, is that as long as you keep trying, as long as you're in the game, then you're a hero. You know, let, let's say that's what you want to stand for. And if, if, if I say, well, who the hell are you? You say, I'm the person who stands for this message, and it's an important message. And they can't get to you in that way if you really are clear on what you stand for. Mm -hmm. But, but it, sometimes it's always hard. And the good thing about like at the table, let's say you've made f they, you, you advertise, I made five calls, and it's five no's. But, but then you're getting applause for having picked up the phone five times and that you're going to make five more calls the next day. You get applauded mm -hmm. for, for going, the, you know, keep, you're going in the game, you're, you're still fighting on. And I think that we all sort of need that to say, hey, I made five calls, I'm going to make five calls tomorrow. 
it's okay, that's what it takes. It takes 100 calls to get the one yes, but I'm going to make those 100 calls. I'm going to get that yes. And it's very interesting if you track how people have struggled that my favorite films, if you, you listen to my, the filmmakers, well, they, it took them 10 years to get it mounted. It took you know, lots of insults. It took people you know, battering them down, but they ended up making something brilliant, which a lot of people didn't see, but they saw, and then they gifted me with it. Yes. So um, I think that it's more realistic to say, hey, let's, let's applaud each other for the effort. I feel very free to, to be who I am, and that makes me feel free uh, to be an artist and to create organically the way that I want to create and not have to have like this set formula that I feel like Hollywood kind of feeds you and makes you think that you need. Um, so I feel great. I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, I went through such a hard year and this project was really tough, but now I'm at a place where I finally get to do the work that I want to do. And I set that bar for myself by saying, you know what, I'm not going to conform and do it the way that you want me to do it. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it as an artist. And it's just, you know, setting the tone now for the rest of my work, the rest of my the things that I want to do. Last night's screening was the best screening I've ever had of anything I've ever done because, you know, there were so many tears and so much laughter and it just felt like people really understood m my journey and what I went through, like they related to it. And so many people came up to me and said, you know, I suffered from this and this gives me hope that I can get through it. and. That's what. That's why I made it. You know. I, I mean, yeah, I made it to go and document a personal journey. But I thought, in some way, that if I could make it through this depression, if I could find my artistic integrity again, that maybe it would inspire other people to be able to do that too, and to have the courage to be able to get out there and tell their stories, no matter who says that they shouldn't. In the show notes below this podcast is a list of mental health resources. If it's an emergency or if you are worried that you or someone you know may be at risk for suicide, please call your local authorities, 911, or go to the nearest emergency room.